Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Eric Gonzalez and Michael Stern. Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stern. All right, we're getting to the halfway point of the season. We're getting some delays caused by COVID. We have a few comebacks or people returning to the lineup, and then we'll finish off with everybody's favorite segment, plead their case. I'll ask you a series of questions, and you will plead the case for the individual or the scenario. But to start, Chef Curry with the shot, cooked to 29.74 and became the all-time three-point great, had Ray Allen and Reggie Miller in attendance as he broke past both of those guys against the Knicks. And he's clearly going to exceed that number and go way beyond the 3,000 mark. I think he's got still another five or six good seasons left. But where do you think he ends up in terms of total three-pointers made? And who of the young guys currently do you think may have a chance to pass him? Well, what's fortunate for Steph Curry, and I mean, let's just talk a little bit about how Spike Lee on the night that he broke it was being so extra. He forgot he was a Knicks fan. He was just on the ground taking photos of Stephen Curry from every angle, even getting down onto his butt so he can take the perfect shot. But um, I mean, I guess it was a historic moment. But what's good for Stephen Curry is that his skill, his three-point shooting is something that should be effective for the rest of his career. He's not relying necessarily on, on elite athleticism or things that are going to be every year that you age declining. Your shooting ability is one of the most consistent things throughout. And um, to be honest with you, at the pace that he's at, I would expect, let's see, let's just take a look at the total three-pointers that he's made so far. He's done this. The crazy part about it is the amount of games in which he's done it. If you're looking at the all-time leaders, we have Stephen Curry now with the lead with only 790 games played. Ray Allen and Reggie Miller, conversely, each had to play 1,300 games at least to reach their numbers. And Stephen Curry, if he remains healthy, even if he declines, I wouldn't be shocked to find him finishing close to 4,000 three-pointers made. Oh, I think he's going to get to six. I mean... If he plays, I think he's going to play another at least five seasons. And like you said, that shot is one of the most consistent things that you can have. And his lowest season of when he was healthy was 500 three-pointers. And that's an outlier compared to his other seasons. When he started just shooting lights out in his fourth season, he had 600, then 615, then 646, then 886 uh, attempts. So, I mean... I think that he easily can get to he's uh, making almost half those attempts. So if he's shooting half 50% and he's gotten uh, 300 per season, I mean, depending on how long he plays, probably not 6,000, he'll probably get to way over 10,000 attempts, but I think he has a chance to get to 4,500 or 5,000 by the end of his career, which we'll get into who might be able to pass him, but I, I don't, I don't know if anybody's catching him. The thing with me is I obviously think that he has the ability and the skill. If he actually does play those five to six seasons, like you said, he could definitely break 5,000 three-pointers made. My thing with him is that Stephen Curry hasn't necessarily always been a healthy player. Yeah, he's been healthy this year, but we have seen in the past 
He has dealt with injury issues before. He is 33 years old right now. We have to be able to at least assume that in the next three to four years, he's going to miss some time due to some kind of injury because that's been the story of his career up to this point. Honestly, if he hadn't gotten hurt some of those other years, he'd probably be close to 4,000 right now. But um, at 33 years old, I don't think that he's got five years left, to be honest with you. Um, I expect Stephen Curry, because the thing is for me, I don't know if I can envision Stephen Curry as a guy who's just going to quietly go to the bench and accept the six-man role when he's no longer capable of playing starters minutes with a starter's workload. It really just depends on how many games he can actually play. If he's playing, we know he's going to make his shots. But for me, I, I really do think that he's got probably three seasons left. Um, by the time that he turns 36, I think we're going to start hearing the talk about potential retirement. But, um, I mean, what he's done is it's extremely impressive to have done it in basically almost half the amount of games that the two previous greatest shooters of all time did. It just goes to show you where he's at. And to, I guess, go off your other question, I really don't see anyone catching him. I mean, Ray Allen said it himself, the record will never be beat. Um, I just don't see it happening. Like, he is far and away ahead of everyone else. If you look at the numbers, the only player actively that is even in his ballpark would be James Harden randomly, who's number four. I know that people don't really think that he's the most accurate three-point shooter ever. Not that 36% is bad or anything, but he's played 903 games and he's got 2,509 three-pointers made. That's the next closest guy that's active. And he's also now in his thirties. So he's definitely not catching him. So, um, I mean, I guess you could, you could make a case for Trey Young, potentially. The pace that he's been doing it at is pretty great. And then we also recently um, heard a statistic where Anthony Edwards became the youngest player to hit the number of threes that he has, I think surpassing Damian Lillard's record. But um, I just don't see him as a consistent enough three-point shooter to get within that ballpark. I really do think it's going to be one of those records that as of right now, what we see in the league today, I don't see a player that can do what Steph Curry did. I guess Trey Young has the closest shot, but I don't see it happening for anyone. Yeah, that's actually who I was going to say is Trey Young. Uh, he would have to get much more accurate from three. Right now, he's at about 35% from three. So I think that he would have to bring those numbers up to about 45%. But he is shooting at a pretty high clip. He's got 42, 568, and 400 in the last three seasons. And it's probably on pace to get above that 400 attempt mark this season. But if he were to average his current three-point percentage and put up 600 three-pointers per season for the next 15 seasons, he'd get to like 4,100 for his career. And he's one of the most prolific young three-point shooters that we have right now. So I think that he's probably the only person that comes to mind. Obviously, Anthony Edwards, if he continues to prove his case, then possibly I think Duncan Robinson would have maybe been in consideration had he not fallen off a cliff this season, but he's also older. So yeah, I think Steph Curry, it's going to be one of those numbers, just like John Stockton assist mark where you have to start early and often, and even then probably not going to catch up to him and probably going to settle for second or third place when it all is said and done. Yeah. I mean, it is really crazy because this, we would all agree that is the most prolific shooting era in basketball history and Stephen Curry in reality kind of spotted all these other players a couple seasons when he was playing with Monte Ellis at the beginning of his Warriors career not really getting as much time not not getting the sort of usage 
that a guy like a Trey Young or a Donovan Mitchell would get. And he still is far and away ahead of everyone else. Because the thing is, like you mentioned with Trey Young, you can be a high volume three point shooter, similar to like a James Harden. You can make a lot of threes. He clearly has the kind of range to hit from similar distances as Stephen Curry with his pull up. But the ability to shoot with that level of volume and accuracy at the same time, I mean, it's just unparalleled. Damian Lillard, I would say, in my opinion, is the second best raw volume three-point shooter in the NBA. I would put him ahead of Trey Young. But just the way that his career has played out, I don't think that he's going to be able to catch Stephen Curry either. He's currently 10th on the list, and he's also now eclipsing 30 years of age. So I really don't see him having the possibility either. It just is a testament to what Stephen Curry was able to do. And I think that um, if, if it wasn't already cemented that he was the greatest shooter ever, I think that this accolade only puts him higher up on the list of all-time great point guards. I don't think that at this point you can have a conversation about who the all-time great point guards are and have any sort of credibility if you're not having Stephen Curry in your top two. I Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that he's completely changed the game. If you look at the spacing on the floor back in the day, and by back in the day, I mean like in the early 2000s to late, early 2010s, um, the floor and the overall layout of team's offense was so much more congested and crowded. And with guys like Stephen Curry, James Harden, Damian Lillard, and now these young guys taking shots from half court or the logo and making them at a high enough percentage, there are people who are playing out that far. And so it opens up the lanes. It allows cutters to get more effectively to the basket. And obviously has shifted the prototypical center to guys like Joel Embiid or Christian Wood or these other new age centers who are spotting up from three. And so he's definitely revolutionized the game. And this is just a testament to him having done that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, think about it. A guy like Trey Young may not even be the Trey Young that we know of today if it wasn't for Stephen Curry first, because back then, I mean, it wasn't even that long ago, but pre-Stephen Curry, if you pulled up from three from near the logo before you even thought about passing it to anyone else or trying to run some sort of offense, there's a good chance your coach is going to chew you out and bench you because that's considered a terrible shot. And for most people, it would be a terrible shot. But the fact that Stephen Curry was able to show that it is possible for him to make those shots at a high volume consistently, that paved the way for guys like Trey Young, Damian Lillard. I mean, Damian Lillard actually may have been much higher up on this list in terms of being able to catch Stephen Curry for three-pointers made if Stephen Curry had revolutionized the game sooner because we would have seen a more high-volume shooting Damian Lillard from three. The freedom that he takes shots with now are largely due to Stephen Curry showing that it is a viable form of offense. And I remember back in the day, they always used to say that this was a gimmicky offense. Um, It's the kind of thing that can win you games in the regular season. We used to see the old Phoenix Suns be pretty competitive, trying to have a high-volume perimeter attack, although the three-point shots were coming spread out. It wasn't just one guy taking them all. But it was considered to be exciting and fun to watch, but not something that could actually win. And so Stephen Curry showed everyone that it is possible to win it all, win the championship, playing that style of basketball. And conversely, like you mentioned, he ruined the game for a lot of players too. I mean, if you're the kind of player now that has no ability to shoot, you're probably going to find yourself near the end of the rotation because at this point, three-point shooting has revolutionized the game. And 
if you're not a threat to at least make a guy go out there and guard you from that distance, you're hurting your offense. So even if you don't think Stephen Curry is the best player of all time, you have to agree. He probably is one of the most influential players of all time based on the impact he's had on the way the game is played. I completely agree. But moving on, talking about uh, some of the delays that we've had, COVID is seemingly uh, in a full swing again with the Omicron variant. A lot of outbreaks happening with teams, causing teams to close facilities or delay games. Recently, we had the Bulls have, I think, 10 players in COVID protocols and are now back to playing basketball after having a couple games delayed. But five teams, the Nets, the Cavs, the Hawks, the 76ers, the Magic, They've all had games delayed recently due to COVID outbreaks on the teams. So do you think that the NBA is going to be able to finish the season as is with their protocols and having these delays? Or do you think that they might have to shift to regional bubbles or implement a shorter season if this continues to transpire? I don't think that they would shorten the season. Um, I, I feel like shortening the season would be extremely complex to do especially in terms of scheduling. And you also have to make sure that every team plays the same number of games. We obviously have some teams that are being hit harder by these COVID outbreaks than other teams. So I don't think that just simply cutting the season short or shortening some team seasons is not viable. But I think that the bubble experiment did show that the bubble is viable. Um, the bubble environment, obviously, a lot of players complained about having to be locked up, I guess, in one facility, not being able to contact the outside world as much. But I can see it happening when we get closer to the playoffs. If this continues to be an issue and we get towards the end of the season, I think that the NBA would really want to be able to still begin the playoffs at the same time rather than extend the season and let other teams catch up and play out their games. In a situation like that, I could definitely see the NBA implementing regional bubbles just to make sure that going into the playoffs, there's no random outbreaks that could potentially mess up scheduling. Yeah, I think that with the mental health that the players uh, talked about having within the bubble environment and doing that in a regular season type of environment, I think it'd be very difficult for the NBA. I agree with you that I don't think having the season be shortened is that feasible, but if no teams are having outbreaks and are able to play games, and then you have other teams that are having outbreaks and delayed games, then there might be a one to two week makeup period where some teams have no games and other teams are playing multiple back-to-backs over the course of two weeks. And then they go into the postseason with some uh, like exhausted guys, whereas other teams may have fresh legs. And so it might shift to the whole power dynamic in terms of home court advantage or just having rest period. So I don't think that they'll implement a bubble and I don't think that they'll restart or rather shorten the season, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Omicron variant and how it continues to sweep through the NBA. I think the NBA will need to allow for, and you have started to see a little bit of this where they have hardship uh, provisions where they can have players be signed for shorter durations. Um, but I think that each team is going to have to have easy access to the G league to players who are free agents. And you're going to see a lot of shuffling of guys who are just going to play for a couple of games. And it may give some guys who haven't had opportunities uh, over the last couple of years, the chance to play and show out and basically get an audition for teams during this COVID period. But it'll be interesting to see how everything unfolds because 
I think that the NBA, as it thinks about player safety, is going to have to definitely ramp up or ramp down depending on the outbreak of a given team. Yeah, definitely. Um, it sucks to have COVID affecting the season again. We already saw what happened with the bubble season. Obviously, players unhappy, fans not being able to attend games. It's not good for the NBA either, but player safety being at the top of the list. I do think that um, the hardship exception will definitely help. But from the standpoint of competitiveness, I feel like the regional bubble actually would probably help in terms of making sure that you have an environment where you're reducing the risk of infection so that you're not losing key players. If you have a guy like DeMar DeRozan going to injury protocols for the Bulls, signing a player from a hardship or an exception or something like that is obviously not going to make the difference for your team. I think that in a situation like that, if you're the Bulls, you'd rather not play with players that you're just picking up off G League or off waivers or anything like that and just wait it out until a guy like DeRozan could come back. Maybe what they could do is also shorten the period that players have to wait in order to produce um, the negative test results. I mean, LeBron James was able to return from his health and safety protocol pretty quickly, but then we've seen other players that have been held out over 10 days for these things. So they do have to hammer out their process. Hopefully they can figure out a way to get the testing protocols, the turnaround for players that test positive a little bit quicker. Yep. Well, we'll see how the NBA handles this, but hopefully things slow down again and we're able to have a healthy season um, and get everything squared away. But talking about somebody who has not been with the team due to the COVID regulations, Kyrie Irving is back, at least partially. After deciding to sit him for all games to start the season, Sean Marks, Joseph Sai, and the rest of the Nets have decided that due to all of their roster shortages due to injury or COVID, that it's in their best interest to bring back Kyrie Irving, albeit it'll be for a part-time capacity. But as soon as he comes back, he's already in COVID protocols himself. So once he does come back and is able to play in all games outside of New York, what do you think the impact of Uncle Drew will be for the Nets? I actually think that in the regular season, it'll be positive just because the Nets are already pretty depleted as it is. Kevin Durant himself just had to enter protocol. So yeah, there's obviously going to be issues with continuity. It's going to be hard on a game-to-game -game basis to be able to have a consistent game plan because obviously the game plan with Kyrie Irving on your team and with him sitting on the bench are completely different. But um, I do think that it'll still be positive overall for the Nets. You are getting back a guy who... His last two seasons with the Nets, he averaged 27.4 points per game and 26.9 points per game. Both seasons shot above 47%. Yeah, you're not getting him for the home games, but if you can get that sort of production, at least on a couple road games when you need the depth, I think that it'll help them win some more games in the regular season for sure. Going into the playoffs, I can see how that can become complicated. In the playoffs, I think it's more important to have um, a consistent game plan and to have everyone feel like they're in the proper rhythm there, everyone feels like they know their role and what their function is for that game plan. I think that that could actually be detrimental in the playoffs, especially when teams start to microanalyze and focus on your situation. I think that it could cause problems in the locker room. But if I'm the Brooklyn Nets, I definitely would welcome him playing for the other reasons, simply because I think a lot of teams, we haven't seen Kyrie Irving play in a while. If you're the Nets, I think the ideal situation is still to be able to move Kyrie for a player that can play in your home games. And I think that if he plays well when he returns, perhaps a team that could use an all-star level point guard that isn't in a city 
that has these uh, vaccine card mandates would be willing to part with some assets and acquire him. But I think that just having him sit on your bench, it's just wasted money and wasted talent. The least you can do is let him play, show people the value that he has. And hopefully if you're the Nets, you can flip him for an asset that can be there for all the games and not just half of them. Yeah, like you said, I think it'll be tricky, but I think for the beginning of the season, or rather for the regular season, it'll help them for sure. But if they have home court advantage and they're playing these teams uh, to start, whether it's in the early rounds or in the later rounds against the Heat, the 76ers, the uh, Bucks, if he's not there for home games and they have home court advantage, how is that going to mesh well with the team? How is that going to be a complete value add? Because if they're playing with their backs up against the walls for the first couple of games, and then he's able to be there for, let's say they go to a series of seven and he shows out for three of the games and keeps them in contention in that series. And then he's not there for the final game. How does that play into the game plan? And I think that it's going to be tough for Steve Nash to develop a cohesive game plan. And he's really going to have to operate two different offenses at every single time. So I just think that that's going to create a very complicated scenario and situation. And we'll see if that would cause him as they get into the postseason to become vaccinated in order to play the full time. Or like you said, if they're actually able to flip him during the deadline. And I wonder if this is a move to show, Hey, Kyrie, is healthy, is willing to play, and now we can flip him during the deadline rather than team taking a gamble and getting a Kyrie Irving who is not in good shape, who exactly. isn't playing that well and doesn't have the legs under him from playing games during the regular season. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the best case scenario for them. Hopefully he returns. He shows teams that he's still properly conditioned. He's still the Kyrie Irving when he's healthy that people remember and they are able to trade him for an asset that can actually play in those home games. So, I mean, he still is an all-star level talent. You still can't rule out the possibility of a straight up Kyrie Irving for Ben Simmons swap, given that both those teams have a similar situation where you have one of your franchise cornerstones not being able to play either because they refuse to play because they no longer want to be a part of your team or because they want to stand up for their belief in bodily autonomy so I think it's a pretty fair assumption to make at this point that Kyrie is not going to be vaccinated. If he was going to do it, I think he would have done it by now. I think that um, it's pretty clear that he is going to stick his guns on this. And hopefully he gets moved to a situation where he can actually play because he is an exciting player to watch. Yeah, well, we'll see how all that transpires. But moving on to some returns of other all-star guards or rather former all-star guards. Kemba Walker returned to New York's lineup due to their COVID outbreak and not having enough players to play. And he played, happened to be against Boston, his former team that traded him during the offseason and dropped 29 against his former team. Also, Isaiah Thomas, due to the Lakers dealing with the COVID outbreak and a shortage of players, was signed after dropping 42 with the Grand Rapids team in the G League and became the leading scorer against the Timberwolves, scored 19 in his return to the Lakers. So question for Kemba is, was it mis a mistake for Tibbs to sit Kemba this whole time? And for IT, should he have been signed sooner? Well, for me, I mean, I, I went at length when this first began, the benching of Kemba saying that I thought it was a poor decision. They almost pretty much made him the scapegoat. Yes, I mean, Kemba Walker is very awful on defense. But 
to say that he is not capable of even being in the rotation at all. I understand if you're saying he's not a starter, he's not capable of starting, but to take him out of the rotation completely, you're telling me that you feel that you have 10 players on your team that are all better than Kemba Walker. That to me was unfair. I think that Tom Thibodeau kind of pinned the lack of success the Knicks have been having this season on him. He obviously wanted to have someone to blame. He's the new guy. Um, he's not playing defense. Tom's a defensive guy. It was pretty easy to point the finger at him, but I think that you can see his production just based on his return, what he can do. He is a shot maker. You don't want to put him in your starting lineup. That's fine, but he's definitely going to be able to cook some guys off the bench at the very least. And the Knicks weren't winning games when he was sitting. It's not like sitting him helped. The defense was still terrible. So it's not like it's all his fault. And I'm glad that Tom Thibodeau was able to realize that he needs this guy in the lineup. I mean, he's only 31 years old. It's not like he's injured or anything. And honestly, as a team, you're hurting his value too. If you really don't want to keep him long-term and you want to trade him, that's, that's all good. But if you're taking him out of the rotation completely, that's devaluing him a lot. You're basically not going to get any kind of return for Kemba Walker if you do that. So at least in a situation like this, he shows that he still has some games that he can go out there, score 29 points and make an impact, even though they did end up losing that game. Um, I think that having Kemba Walker can't hurt the Knicks at this point. It's not like they've been having a good year anyway. Yeah, and if you look at Kemba, Kemba Walker this season, like you said, he's not going to be a lockdown defender. But if you look at his shooting percentages this year, his usage rate is definitely down, but his effective field goal percentage is higher than it's been in any of his seasons. His three-point percentage is higher than it has been in any of his seasons. He's shooting at 42% this season. And so he's still serviceable. And maybe if his usage rate was up, his points per game would be higher and he would be playing more like the Kemba Walker we knew. So just like Kemba said, he just wishes that he would be able to be playing right now. That's all he really wants. So it sounds like he definitely does want off that team if he's not going to be playing. And for two years, I think $10 million per year, he can play solid backup minutes to a team that needs a microwave off the bench and can give you serviceable minutes scoring the ball. So he's getting more efficient in his fewer minutes per game. And that's valuable for any team, albeit he's not going to be the lockdown defender, which nobody's expecting from him. Yeah. And then when you flipping over to Isaiah Thomas, I think with Isaiah Thomas, you actually have a player who is essentially almost the exact same as Kemba Walker in terms of what he can offer and what his weaknesses are. You have, again, another undersized point guard that potentially can score in bunches when they get hot, but is a complete defensive liability. I think that both of them should be given the same role, microwave off the bench. That's the best situation for them. And for Isaiah Thomas, I am glad to see him back in the league, but I can't say that um, it was not justified why it took so long for him to be signed and given another opportunity. He had a severe hip injury for a guy like him who used to go into the paint a lot to get that hip injury really killed his mobility. Also, the fact that he wasn't able to move laterally made him that much worse on defense. He was getting killed out there because he didn't have the ability to move laterally at the same, the same speed that he used to. So he wasn't getting in the paint. Um, his jump shot was inconsistent. And let's remember, he did get a chance to come back several times. And he was very ineffective when he did. In the 2017 season, the first season that he attempted to come back after the injury, 
He played only 15 games. He averaged 14 points per game on abysmal shooting percentages, literally 25% from three on nearly six attempts per game. He had a stint with the Lakers that season when he got traded. He struggled there um, and then had a little short stint with the, with the Nuggets after that, struggled there, 8.1 points per game. I mean, we're talking about many opportunities. There were lots of teams that did give him the opportunity to show that he could be that guy that was averaging 28.9 points per game in his Celtics career. But I think that those days really are firmly behind him. That was back in the 2016-2017 season. So he's obviously not ever going to be that IT again. But I will say it does seem like he is healthier this year than he has been in the last four. And for a Lakers team that is really not getting much on offense, especially with Anthony Davis going out again, um, I think that they can use any sort of help that they can get. So it's worth taking a flyer on a guy like this. And like you said, for the Lakers, he has performed admirably since he's come back. He's averaging 16 points in two games. Very small sample size, of course, but he does look better out there. And to put up 40, 40 points in a G League game, I know it is G League competition, but you're still dropping 40 against um, pretty high caliber talent if you think about it. So I am glad to see him back in the league. I don't think that he's going to be an all-star or be even one of the three best players on the Lakers. But given that the other day the Lakers had a player playing that looked like an auto-generated player because they don't know who to throw out there anymore, I think having Isaiah Thomas, someone who's had experience in the league, he has been a dominant scorer in the past, and his shooting percentages have gone up this year. I think it really does help, especially with their spacing issues, because they really do lack consistent perimeter shooting on that team. So at the very least, he can provide a threat from three-point range. And with Isaiah Thomas, I agree with all your points. And I think that with him, he talks about the slow grind and the slow marathon that he's had to get back to where he's at. And he's said that he feels the healthiest that he has felt in years and a hip injury is a big thing for all the reasons you mentioned, lateral movement, especially a shorter player having to drive to the basket, trying to get spacing, trying to get uh, like dribble to the side and, and post up from three. And Even so your balance on your jump shot. I mean, yeah. you, your hip is your center of balance. If you have a severe hip injury. You're not going to go up with balance. It's going to be really hard to shoot accurately. Yeah. And the most messed up part about it for me is he played through that injury and probably made it so much worse by putting it all out there for the Celtics. And obviously it's a business. They got Kyrie Irving back in the trade to give it over to the Cavaliers, but the Celtics really like had this guy who put his heart and soul out there for him, for them. And it ended up honestly costing him at least an eight figure deal and probably a nine figure deal. If he would have gotten a five year, one twenty five contract when people like Luol Deng and Timothy Mozgov were getting four years, 64 and 72 million. So it could have easily gotten those numbers. And probably if he would have instead not played after the death of his sister and through the Boston Celtics playoff run, he probably would have been able to rehab that hip and been the player that he was and is at a sooner point. But he played through all of that. He got traded and now he's signing 10 day contracts. Hopefully he signed for the rest of the season and we're able to see an IT get a resurgence, not obviously to the level of getting MVP votes or all-star votes like you alluded to, but potentially like Derek Rose, where 
people thought Rose was left for dead. And then Rose comes back and has now been extremely serviceable. People have talked about potential six man of the year considerations or him getting back to 75, 80% of the form that we remembered and loved him by. And so I hope that IT gets that. I hope that he's able to recoup and get some of the money that he was definitely deserving of based off of his earlier performances. And whether it's with the Lakers or with another team, he does get the opportunity to be that microwave off the bench, potential sixth man or seventh man off the bench and provide what everybody knows he can, which is scoring in this league. Yeah, I wish him the best of luck. I mean, he's been an underdog his entire career, was the 60th pick, started out with the Sacramento Kings, which is depressing already as it is. I mean, to be able to ascend from being the 60th pick in Sacramento, surrounded by utter chaos, a 5'9 guard, and that's being generous. I mean, to be able to do all that he's done in the league has been really impressive. So I always root for a fighter and someone that other people count out. So I hope you're right about the Derrick Rose comparison. Um, he should probably call him up for inspiration because that would be the best case scenario for him. Yep. Well, to our last segment, plead their case. I'll ask you a series of questions and you will reply with what their case is for that situation or that person. And to start, Anthony Davis, AD, injures his knee, tripping over McDaniels from the Timberwolves in a recent loss and is expected to be out for four to six weeks. He heard a pop. Luckily, it was not that bad. But plead AD's case on why this was a freak accident and he can remain healthy otherwise. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Anthony Davis, I know that he has never had one full healthy year. I know that he has missed games literally every year of his career since he's gotten into the league. But you know what? You got to give him a little bit of credit. You know, he had a couple seasons where he did play 70 games, 60 games. And in reality, he's only had one season where he played less than 50 games. So I guess health is relative. We don't necessarily need him to play 82 games to consider him a healthy player. I think that when you're looking at Anthony Davis, you have to look at it through a different lens when you compare health. I think that the number for Anthony Davis to be considered healthy, let's throw it at 70 games. If he can play 70 games, he's healthy. And I know he hasn't done that yet for the Lakers, but they did have a bubble season the first time. So you can say that's the reason why he didn't reach that number. There were much fewer games. Um, I know he played 36 games in the 20. 2021 season but I mean he's still on pace to potentially be able to get close to 70 games this year if the if the MCL strain isn't anything serious and he can come back in a week or two he still is within the realm of possibility of having what's considered a healthy season for Anthony Davis yeah it it is healthy relatively for him and we've talked about this all year but to me he is the X factor, if you will, for the Lakers. And by X factor, I mean, he probably is their most important piece because you know, LeBron James is going to give LeBron James stats and LeBron James effort day in and day out. Obviously they trade for Russell Westbrook. That doesn't happen with spacing, but AD comes out and critiques his teammates, critiques the Lakers, critiques everybody. But as Charles Barkley said, he needs to be playing better. And the only way for him to play better is to be on the floor. And so I think that it looks like he's been having a good season health-wise and for the Lakers to be successful and for them to get out of the playing game and to be able to ascend to a, a seed where 
maybe they won't have court home court advantage, but they can play and knock off a three seed or a four seed based off of their rankings. That's really the only way they're going to get back to potentially the Western conference finals and to the finals is with a healthy, good uh, Anthony Davis, who is going to play with good shooting and domination inside. So hopefully he can get back and get healthy, but and and hopefully can avoid some of these freak accidents because tripping over a player, stepping on a player and rolling your ankle or going up for a ball and coming down awkwardly are the worst kinds of injuries because they they really didn't need to happen. Um, so wish him the best in his road to recovery. I hope so, too. He is he is kind of made of glass, but you do have to look at it from the standpoint of I mean, he has played 27 games this year and he's actually even though everyone is saying he's playing much worse this season. He actually is having a better season this year than last year. His scoring is up. His field goal percentage is up. I know his three-point percentage is way down, but his field goal percentage overall is up. Um, And he also does play his usual elite defense. I think that if the Lakers are going to do anything, it actually is more important for Anthony Davis to be their best player than LeBron James because, I mean, I disagree with the LeBron James effort. I think that LeBron James hasn't given LeBron James effort in quite some time. I think that he picks and chooses when he's going to give his best effort. And I think that Anthony Davis, because of that, needs to be on it every game because LeBron James is going to take a couple plays off here and there. He is 36 years old. We do see it in the games where there are just some plays that he just does not get back on defense. He will go and argue that he didn't get a call with a referee. Maybe he'll save some in the tank because he feels like he's going to have to have a big fourth. But regardless, point is, I don't think that you can consider LeBron James the workhorse that he used to be anymore, at least not if you want the Lakers to win. So if you're the Lakers, you better hope that he has one of those seasons where he can play at least 60, 70 games, because without him, I don't think even LeBron James playing at an MVP level could save the Lakers. But I think LeBron plays off of his play, his guys playing well. And so if Anthony Davis is taking plays off, then LeBron James is going to go, well, if he's not playing, then I'm not going to play hard. You know, Russell's not going to take any plays off, but I think for him, as he sees Anthony Davis develop and eventually take the reins over as the Lakers MVP or or go-to guy, he's going to need to see Anthony Davis not taking plays off for him to not want to take plays off. And so I do think that both of them have to be in sync in that regard in order for the Lakers to make a deep run. I mean, this is on LeBron James, too, though. You can't say, oh, I am the leader. I am the king of this team. But when other people play like they're not really trying, then I'm not going to try either. That's not a leader's mentality. What a leader does is when other people aren't giving their best effort and you are giving yours, you call them out and you make them step up to the level that you're playing at. So unless LeBron James wants to take the back seat and just hand Davis the keys to the car, he's the one that needs to make sure that Davis steps up to the production level that he needs to be at. That is your job as the leader of the team to do that. So I hope that um, when Anthony Davis does return, it's something that can be addressed because honestly, it has been a little frustrating to watch Lakers games these seasons because it seems like 40% of the time that they're playing, one of the two, be it LeBron or Anthony Davis, taking plays off to go argue with refs or throwing their hands up in the air because someone missed their rotation. I mean, you, you can't have that if you want to win. And also I think for players that aren't leadership players, players that are coming off the bench, role players, these are guys that are severely affected in their performance 
based on how the leaders of that team are doing. If they see that the leaders don't give a crap, they're not going to give a crap either. So they need to figure out what type of season they're trying to have. Some people are saying that Anthony Davis mailed it in. He won his first championship. So he's like, well, I've got nothing to prove now. I won my ring. That's it. I'm going to cruise. If you're the Lakers, you hope that's not the case because you did trade pretty much your entire future. I don't know how many first round picks um, and top selections they traded that are now thriving elsewhere only to acquire Anthony Davis. So, I mean, if you're a Lakers fan, maybe you say that the one bubble championship was enough to justify all of that. But um, if it's me, I mean, I would definitely expect for Anthony Davis to be performing at a higher level than he is right now. I agree. But moving on, the Miami Heat have played more road games than any other team and have had to do it with the majority of the rotation out due to injury. Bam Adebayo has been out. Jimmy Butler has been out. Tyler Hero has been out. Really their top three guys on that team. But somehow they've managed to stay afloat in the playoff race and have won four of their last six, largely due to contributions from undrafted no-name players such as Max Struess, Gabe Vincent, and... Honestly, Kyle Lowry playing pretty well in the absence of the main starters on the Heat. So plead the case on why the Heat can continue to play winning basketball regardless of their depleted depth. So I earlier addressed this and said that I really did feel like the Heat were going to need to get an outside addition to bolster their front court depth because I didn't see how it could be possible for them to win this way. But if a case can be made for them, it's the fact that they have been able to stay afloat while playing the toughest schedule in the NBA so far, probably. They've had more road games than any other team and have probably played the toughest schedule by competition of any other team, but they're still sitting in 18 and 13. So the schedule is now going to start taking a turn for them. They're going to start getting a lot more home games, and they're also going to be going into a stretch of teams that are, for the most part, sub-500 teams. So you got to imagine that if they can still stay afloat with the circumstances that they had to play, constantly being on the road, playing tougher level teams, you got to figure that they could still play at least 500 ball when they're getting favorable circumstances, getting their home games, playing teams that aren't as good. And also the Heat, they're a team that I think is really going to benefit from this little stretch because even though it was very frustrating to have all of those players out, I think it's really given an opportunity for a lot of other players that normally would have never played to get valuable playing time to develop into meaningful rotation pieces or trade chips. This is a team that has now gotten an undrafted player in Caleb Martin, Max Struess, um, Duncan Robinson, all these guys, um, Gabe Vincent, these are all players that no one cared about. And they're all now performing at a level that you have to at least say that they're rotational players. Like, these guys are actually making positive impacts on the game. We've seen during this stretch, no-name guys like Gabe Vincent and Max Struess have broken their career high in points multiple times, having multiple 20-point games each, um, shooting from volume and consistency from three. This was a team that there were a lot of question marks going in. Outside of the main known commodities, how would these guys produce? They didn't even have a backup point guard on the roster technically. They were basically just saying, yeah, we're going to go with Gabe Vincent. Who's Gabe Vincent? No one knows. But he's actually playing really well now. So I think it gives you a wealth of problems for the Heat. The Heat are going to have a log jam very soon when these players start to come back. Jimmy Butler has um, the tailbone contusion, Tyler Hero quad injury, 
Caleb Martin with the health and safety protocols. These are things that they're not going to keep them out for a long chunk of time. These guys are all going to come back sooner than later. And when all these guys come back, they're going to have a log jam at guard. We haven't even talked about Victor Oladipo, who is now finally traveling with the team and able to shoot around at least. He's going to come back probably sometime around March is what they're saying. So you're going to have a situation where you can't possibly play all of these guys. But now you have guys that have earned these minutes. So I think it puts the Heat in a really good position to be able to pivot and move some of these guys for an actual impactful big uh, big man that can space the floor for them and really allow them to be a dominant elite team in the playoffs. So even though they don't have draft capital, they clearly trade away their picks every year. It doesn't seem to bother them because they feel like they can pick someone up undrafted or in the second round, like a Max Struess, who will eventually be someone that's valuable and someone that can contribute to your team. So um, I think that it's going to be really beneficial for them going forward. And I do think that the soft schedule and the favorable home schedule coming up will also help this team a lot. So I think that the the best is still in front of them for this team. Yeah, and it I think is very promising. Like you said, it gives them a ton of depth. It allows these guys, if they do need some rest, to be able to take some time off and have people like Max Truce fill in for a Duncan Robinson or a Tyler Hero to have Gabe Vincent come in and potentially fill in for Kyle Lowry to have Caleb Martin come in and fill in for Jimmy Butler. But you told me this or told the world this in a recent podcast that you think there may need to be a trade of Duncan Robinson for a Jeremy Grant or for Christian Wood or to get one of those big guys who can score the ball and be next to Bam and space out the floor. And I at first said that I don't think that Pat Riley would do that. I think it would show that he made a mistake in signing Duncan Robinson to such a rich deal. But with Max Drews's recent showing and being able to go, I think, eight of 11 and score 32 points off the bench, I think that he is potentially a poor man's Duncan Robinson in shooting currently and has the potential to fill in nicely there, uh, plays defense pretty well. And if we can go ahead and trade Duncan Robinson to get back Jeremy Grant or to get back Christian Wood or to get back somebody of that caliber and get a big man for the heat, then I think it sets them up nicely for the postseason, especially with Oladipo coming back, you might have a log jam at guard. So it might set them up for success. Maybe they want to continue to run and see if they have just a great three-point shooting team. I believe the last couple of seasons that he have been up there in the top three in terms of three-point efficiency. So maybe they want to keep the core unit and see how that goes, but definitely gives them some options come the trade deadline when trying to see how they can improve. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I personally cannot see the Miami Heat retaining both Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero. I don't think that that can happen just based on the simple fact that Tyler Hero has already come out and said that he envisions himself as a long-term starter. He does not see himself as a Jordan Clarkson type guy. He sees himself as a starting caliber player. He's okay with coming off the bench this year. He knows that's his role this season, but he's firmly expecting to be in the starting lineup next season. And it's hard to blame him when he is significantly outproducing Duncan Robinson, the guy who's starting ahead of him. And I really don't think that you can have Duncan Robinson, who really only does one thing at an elite level. He's a catch-and-shoot threat. He's a good three-point shooter, albeit not really consistent this year. But he doesn't do anything else, and that's the issue. You can't have a starter in your lineup 
that when their one thing isn't working for them, they can't give you anything else. That's a three-point specialist. That's a one-trick pony. Yes, there is a place for guys like that in the league, but you don't want that to be in your starting lineup. And next season, what are you going to do? You're going to have Duncan Robinson making $90 million to come off the bench to be a three-point specialist. Either that or you trade Tyler Hero because he's going to want a bigger role. So I think that at this point, you look at Max Struess, he has made Duncan Robinson completely expendable in every way. And I wouldn't even say that he's a poor man's Duncan Robinson. He might be just as good of a shooter as Duncan Robinson. I know Duncan made obviously fastest to be able to make 600 threes. He's obviously been a very elite shooter for the last couple of years. But if you look at the three-point percentages, I mean, his best year, when no one knew about him, he shot 44% from three because he was getting a ton of open looks because no one knew about this guy. But every year after that, he's gone down a little bit. The year after that, he shot 40.8% from three. Still very elite and very effective. But I mean, if you look at Max Struess right now, he's shooting 41% from three on 5.4 attempts right now. And he also plays better defense, is more athletic. He actually does have the ability to finish with authority. We've seen him drop some posters on people. He plays with more confidence than Duncan Robinson does. He's younger, he's 25, and he's making almost no money. So, and he does the same things as Duncan does. It's the same role, the same position. It's almost like the same player, except that Max Bruce probably has a higher ceiling. So I think it's a no-brainer for the Miami Heat to let go of Duncan Robinson. I don't think that they're going to get the value back on a one-trick pony. And being that he's 27 years old, I don't really know how much he's going to add to his game because he's had all these years to show development and other aspects of his game. And he largely hasn't like he still blows wide open layups. Occasionally Um, he still is not really a good defender on the perimeter. He's basically been for the last three years showing you the kind of player that he is. And not that he's a bad player. He's just not a starter. So I think that the Miami heat would be smart to trade him when he he's, he's eventually going to get a little bit of a hot streak from three point range. I don't expect him to shoot 33% all year long because that would be a 7% drop from last year's average and even a bigger drop from the year before that, where he was shooting above 40% both years. I think that he would be smart to capitalize on his next hot stretch and move him then. Yeah. All eyes will be on the heat as they approach the trade deadline, but I think it's a good problem to have, but moving on to our final plead their case, Carl Anthony towns came out and said, quote, I am the greatest big man shooter of all time, end quote. Please plead Carl Anthony's Towns case as to why he is the best big man shooter of all time. So I know that sounds crazy what he's saying. Um, He's nowhere near on the all-time three-pointers made list or anything like that. We all know there have been players in the past like a Dirk Nowitzki and Kevin Durant even. I mean, example in the NBA today right now, Kevin Durant, you have to consider him a big man. Like he is seven foot, regardless of whatever, what anyone wants to list him as to say that you're the best big man shooter of all time. When you're playing in the league at the same time that Kevin Durant is, is a very, very bold statement to make, but you do have to give him his credit. If you're looking at just the raw numbers, Kevin Durant is shooting 38.2% from three this season on 4.9 attempts per game which is very elite, but Carl Anthony Towns actually has been better. He is shooting 41% from three on 5.7 attempts. So he's taken more threes and making more threes than Durant is, which is crazy. 
And the year before this, he shot 38% from three. The two, actually, the three seasons before that, he was above 40% from three each year. So, yes, he wasn't doing it in high volume in 27-18 when he started becoming a very consistent elite shooter from outside. But every year, he's raised his volume a little bit. He's now taking those 5.7 attempts per game. Last year, 6.3 attempts per game, always hovering around 40 or above. So just from a statistical standpoint, you have to give him his credibility. I mean, it's not a a one-season thing or like he's just having a little hot stretch right now. It's that people just don't really give him his credit. He actually is a very good three-point shooter. And honestly, from a statistical standpoint, his numbers are probably arguably the best from three-point range for a center in that volume, I I would probably have to give it to him. He probably is the best shooting big man in that sense. I wouldn't say he's a better shooter overall than Kevin Durant is or anything like that. But if you're just looking at the numbers, you can't say that he's flat out wrong. can't say that he's flat out wrong, but I disagree with him and I disagree with you that he is the best big man shooter. And if we exclude Kevin Durant from this conversation, we think of Kevin Durant as more of like a point forward than your prototypical center in Carl Anthony Towns. If you look at Nikola Jokic's numbers, he has more three-point attempts than Carl Anthony Towns uh, and is scoring overall at a higher rate than Carl Anthony Towns is. Um, and I think that his effective field goal percentage is better than Carl Anthony Towns. And so I think that Nikola Jokic as a whole is a better shooter overall than Carl Anthony Towns because he is scoring better from two-point range and is a little bit under in terms of three-point percentage. And I apologize, he's a little bit under on attempts per game for three-point attempts, but Nikola Jokic is, I think, a better shooter overall than Carl Anthony Towns. And I think both of these guys are bucketed in the similar way that they're both good shooting big men. They both can distribute ball well and are great passers, but I think Jokic has the edge in terms of shooting, distribution, and overall playing ability than Carl Anthony Towns at this point. Well, no question. I would agree with you that Nikola Jokic definitely is the better player of the two, and I would probably still agree with you that he's a better shot maker overall. I mean, he does have a higher field goal percentage, but I think that when Kat was saying this, he was specifically referencing three-point shooting. I know that he didn't say that, but I'm pretty sure that's what he was alluding to. And if you're looking at just that number, Nikola Jokic has not had even one season where he shot as well as Carl Anthony Towns is doing this year from three. Like the volume that he's shooting at has always been higher than Nikola Jokic. Yes, Nikola Jokic can knock down his threes, but he, if you look at him play, his three-point shooting largely is reliant on someone finding him open on a catch and shoot. He's not going to be shooting step back three-pointers taking fadeaway turnaround jumpers from three. Like Carl Anthony Towns actually does do those things. Like Carl Anthony Towns does move like a guard, even though he is a center. So I think that even though Jokic is a better shot maker, better player, maybe better shooter overall, I think without question, if I'm counting on somebody to make a three-pointer for me, I'd rather have Carl Anthony Towns shooting it. Well, Carl Anthony Towns is going to come after you, Steph. So watch out for that record. But... (laughs) With that, that's the end of the show. Like us and subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast players and stations. Follow us on Courts of Opinion at on Twitter, Court of Opinion on Instagram, and visit our website at courtsofopinion.com. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned. Court, court of opinion.